0: so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, you're listening to the New Books Network. My name is Joe Tasca, and today I am speaking with Peter Hayes, a Holocaust historian and a professor of German history at Northwestern University in Illinois. He is the author of many books on the Nazi era, including Why? Explaining the Holocaust. And that's the book that we're going to be talking about today. It was published in 2017. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me.
2: My pleasure, Joe.
1: Peter, as we get started here, the question that you ask in your introduction, I think, is a great way for us to begin our chat. Why another book on the Holocaust? You yourself have written several of them. Um, Talk about your motivation for writing this volume.
2: Well, you know, my motivation was uh, twofold. Um, One was kind of an accident. Uh, I realized that because of the way I had taught a course over 25 different iterations on the Holocaust, that I was in a position to write a new kind of history of the subject, um, not a, not the usual history that begins at A and ends at Z and tells the whole story in chronological order, but a history that's more analytical analytical and question-focused. And that was because I taught for many years at Northwestern on the quarter system, which means you don't have 13 to 16 weeks to unfold a course. You have nine weeks of teaching to do. And I had to devise a way over the years of fitting the subject into that Procrustean bed. And I did it over time because I figured out that my students, year after year, came in with the same sets of basic questions about the subject that they were puzzled by or they wanted to know. And I gradually began to organize the course so that each week addressed one of those questions. So I got to the end and I realized, okay, I have the framework for a book that would enable me to write a different kind of history that might people might be curious about. I suppose the other reason I did it was because I thought that accidentally, to be sure, this new way of writing about the subject might really make it much more accessible to a lot of people. Um, There are some magnificent narrative histories of the Holocaust. There's two volumes by Schaal Friedländer that are unlikely ever to be surpassed. There's a very good book by David Cesarani called The Final Solution, but it's 950 pages long. And so I thought, you know, if I can get this somehow into maybe 400 pages tops, it would be more accessible and uh, not only by its structure, but by its size. And so that's why I did it. Um, I I got to the point where I was about to retire and I had time to pull it all together and add the footnotes and make sure there weren't any gaps that I had left out. And so um, I did it. And that was my first post-retirement project.
1: Well, speaking of gaps, Peter... You mention what you perceive to be a growing gap between what historians know about the Holocaust and what the public believes, this gap between scholarship and public memory, which has led to the perpetuation of some myths about the Holocaust. So my question to you, Peter, is why do these myths Persist have historians not done enough to put them to bed?
2: Well, I would suspect that we haven't because here I was in two thousand and sixteen trying to put them to rest myself, uh, so clearly they persisted. Some of it is not our fault uh some of it is um, let me let me illustrate I think there's a tendency to think that um Hitler came to power determined to do what he did. And therefore, in 1933, he knew exactly what he was going to do to the Jews 10 years down the line. Uh, we pretty much know that that's not the case. Um, that he did have moments, even as early as 1919, 1920, where he said very violent things about the future of Jews in Germany, talked about hanging them from the lampposts in Munich. Uh, but. That vision did not go so far as to imagine wiping wiping out a whole continent full of people uh, by the means that he ultimately discovered. And so there's an evolutionary process that goes on. Uh, equally, it's not true that Hitler was brought to power by the popularity of anti-Semitism in Germany. Anti-Semitism, as long as the only thing most Germans knew about the Nazi party was that it hated Jews. Hitler was getting between two and six percent of the vote. Uh, What made the difference was the onset of the depression. And with the onset of the depression and the failure of other political parties to solve that crisis in the country, Hitler's kinds of radical, simple-minded solutions became ever more appealing. And so in a sense, in 1931, 32, the problem in Germany was not the widespreadness, if you will, of anti-Semitism. The problem was that there were very few anti-anti-Semites. There were very few people who thought that hating a certain category of citizens was a disqualification for office. And so Hitler came in with a minority of popular support in Germany. He never got more than 37% in a free election. So there are a lot of things like this, and they require both for historians to be more forthright and clear, but also for the public to be interested in the message and to be willing to put in the energy to study the complexities uh, in order to appreciate the true nature of the situation.
1: Peter, you've just talked about uh, two of what I believe are eight myths that you dissect during the course of your book, and we'll talk about more of them as we proceed with our conversation You also talk about, in your introduction, your desire to make the Holocaust more comprehensible for the general public. What do you mean by that?
2: I think many people, when they're faced with a number like six million victims, or when they're faced with the enormous brutality of this process, simply throw up their hands. It's so hard to grasp that human beings would act toward each other in this way. Although if we read the newspapers today, um, we can see it playing out right before our eyes in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, the enormous brutality and viciousness of the, the way Russian troops are behaving. And that makes what happened in 1941 to 45 somewhat more topical for us and accessible. But, but generally, I think people tend to look at the Holocaust and because it's so horrible to simply say, oh, I can't understand it. It's unintelligible. It's incomprehensible. And that's a kind of mystification because the Holocaust is as explicable and as comprehensible as any other complicated event in history. And if it's not Comprehensible and intelligible than no other event is. The, the onset of the French Revolution, the break, uh, outbreak of the American Civil War, uh, the outbreak of World War I, none, none of these events are any more or less comprehensible. They are all intricate. They all involve understanding a great many aspects of the contemporary situation, and it's hard work. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the reasons why societies maintain people like me. We, we do the hard work, um, but it's also important for people out there to be willing to put in the effort to try to bring all of the complicated causes and relationships together in their mind in understanding how and why something could happen.
1: Well, Peter, part of the process of trying to understand the Holocaust begins, of course, Uh, in post-World War I Germany. Can you talk about the process of demonizing the Jews? Why were the Jews targeted in the 1930s in Germany? And why did a civilized European country like Germany vilify Judaism?
2: Like all complicated historical events, this has a short-range and a long-range answer. Uh, The long-range answer is, not to put it too crudely, um, but anti-Semitism is built into the culture of the Western world because it's built into the history of Christianity. And the early period uh, in the history of Christianity is a period of conflict between the teachings of Judaism and the teachings of Christianity. All of the central teachings of Christianity are, in a sense, offshoots of Jewish teachings, monotheism. Christianity takes monotheism and says, yes, there is one God, but it has three forms. Or scripture. Christianity takes the Hebrew Bible and then adds to it in the form of the Gospels and the Epistles. Um, These are, and then there is the notion of covenant, the central notion that the people of Israel have made a covenant with the Lord. In return for obeying the rules he has laid down, he will make them as a light unto the nations. Christianity takes this notion, but says it is not restricted to the Israelites. It is available to everyone who accepts the good news. Now, the Jews are the people in the early years of Christianity who say, no, thank you. Um, We already have these central teachings. We don't accept the modifications that you have on offer. And that rejection, in turn, sets in responses on the part of Christianity, which becomes an increasingly powerful religion after it's declared the official religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. And that Christian response takes the form of trying to keep Jews at arm's length or confined so their teachings cannot undermine the faith of Christians. Now, this, this rivalry between the two religions goes on for hundreds of years, and it is built into Western culture. In the course of the 18th century, as Theological notions lose power in Western history and the enlightenment comes along and declares that all human beings are equal, that all human beings should have the same kinds of opportunities as others do. There is a tendency... There is a a, a philosophical argument which spills over into practical arguments to emancipate the Jews from all the restrictions that are built up around them. And that emancipation takes place from 1789 on in Europe. Um, It also coincides with other developments in the 19th century, industrialization, economic development and so forth. Now the 19th century in in Europe is the history of uh, Jewish emancipation and Jewish success, not universally but widespread. Um, Einstein, I think, is the one who once said that in the 19th century, it was as if Jews had spent 2,000 th- two years studying for your university entrance exams, because all of a sudden Jews were admitted into universities and professions that they'd never occupied before. They, be- they were almost like immigrants into European society, even though they had been present, just separated prior to that. And they Development in the 19th century coincided with adverse developments for some groups of people. Not everybody profited from industrialization and expansion and so on. The groups that tended to decline in the 19th century became the natural audience for anti-Semitic agitation because the agitators said, look, your decline correlates with their rise. They are doing better and, and and you are doing worse because they're doing better. And this became the basis for a kind of transformation of anti-Semitism from a purely religious animosity to one that became economic, social, and then toward the end of the century, increasingly racial, as Darwinian notions of the evolution of different communities developed, as racist ideas spawned by colonialism developed that told us that some peoples are innately superior to others. And in this... Anti Semitism took on still another form, a kind of sense that these people are not so much contaminating to faith, not so much profiting by your loss, but they're just somehow genetically different. In those days, they talked about it as blood, and that that genetic difference is a threat. So, this is this long history of anti Semitism, and many Germans had imbibed it. They didn't imbibe it to the extent that they necessarily believed every piece of it. But they suspected Jews, and then the appetite for that, the, the 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 appetite to believe that, increased greatly as a result of the outcome of World War I for Germany, because not only did the was the nation humiliated by defeat, and not only was it stripped of all kinds of sources of wealth and assets, it was. Um, Its army was cut down to size and then following and its territory was annexed by neighbors. And then there was an extreme economic crisis. There were actually two of them. One in the early 20s was a massive inflation of the German currency in which a lot of people lost the, the values of uh, a lifetime accumulated in the, in their mortgages, and uh, and if they had taken out loans, they were able to pay them back, but they also found that the value of their property had depreciated. And then in the late 1920s, there was the Depression, and the Depression hit Germany harder than any other country in the world. So in this environment, the Nazi agitation, which said, they are the problem, they did this to you was appealing to many Germans because it let them off the hook of responsibility for what had happened in their country. The Nazis kept saying it was the Jews who produced these adverse diplomatic and military and economic developments. And the Jews used communists as their front men and they used the Woodrow Wilson and the Western allies as their front men. And all of it was part of a great collective conspiracy against Germany. And this sort of notion won over some Germans. Other Germans just thought, you know, the Nazis are energetic and the people in power in this country are not rolling back the Depression. There are still 6 million unemployed in 1932. Uh, we Maybe we need a new um, set of people at the helm. And so the the sense of frustration coupled with a sense of, A kind of way of compensating for national defeat was to say, we're not responsible, they are. And this creates the environment in which this ideology can acquire power. Once it got power, then it had the ability to control everything that Germans were told. There were no foreign newspapers available in Germany. In the mid-1930s, there were no foreign radio broadcasts that could be heard in Germany. There, were no, there was no access to any other opinion but the governments. And the governments relentlessly said to Germans every day of the week that the Jews are the problem. They are the source of your misery. Now you couple that with the fact that Hitler did succeed in rolling back the depression it 's the fastest industri- fastest recovery of an industrial country in the world. He did it by means that were not sustainable, massive government spending on rearmament and on factories that would produce uh, products that would replace imports and make the country blockade proof and so on he couldn 't have sustained that over fifteen years, but he didn 't intend to he was what he wanted to do was set up a framework for a series of victorious short wars. And in this environment, he does have some victories. He remilitarizes the Rhineland, he annexes Austria, he annexes Austria, he takes the Sudetenland. The appeasers in Britain and France make this possible for him. And Germans are kind of intoxicated by this. Uh, The the government has achieved these successes that it promised us. And they said to themselves, wir sind wieder wer, we are somebody again. And so in this situation, opposition to what the German government wanted to do to Jews was almost zero. So it's a kind of short-term and long-term story about roots that are deeply embedded in Western culture, but also catastrophes that befell Germany and made it possible for for a movement to spin this web of fantasy and win over a population to doing its will.
1: Peter, you go on at this point in your book to discuss why the Nazis resorted to murder. You stated earlier in our conversation that Hitler did not plan to murder the Jews from day one. That's one of the myths that you address in your book. Uh, You talk about how the Nazi persecution throughout the 30s was very gradual. It started with boycotts and then the Nuremberg Laws forced Jewish immigration. Peter, how did the Nazis proceed from this policy of Jewish immigration to all-out genocide?
2: The key turning point in Nazi policy, I think, comes in 1938. And it's the point at which not only Hitler, but the people around him and the SS men who are delegated to handle this area of policy, all begin to realize that the Nazis have been trying to pursue two central but incompatible purposes. The first is that because Hitler believed that the Jews were in a collective conspiracy against Germany, and that during World War I, that conspiracy had led to Germany's defeat, Hitler believed in the coming war, which would reverse the outcome of World War I, there could be no Jews within the country. They were a fifth column. They were saboteurs. The Germany could not win another war without removing the Jews. So the objective was first a Jew-free German sphere. But the other thing the Nazis wanted was living space, Lebensraum. And the living space they set out to get happened to be the area in the world that was most thickly settled with Jews. Hitler had concluded in the 1920s that great power status in the 20th century required not a colonial empire like the British had had in the 19th century with India and colonies all over the world. No, it required an empire like the United States had. That is an empire that had developed across a continent over time sweeping away the people who were already there and acquiring for Germany the living space that included enough land to grow food sufficient to sustain the German population and enough resources to provide the wherewithal to fight and be a powerful country. So the model for Hitler was expansion from east to west in North America. And for Germany, it would be expansion from west to east into Poland, Ukraine, the Caucasus, areas that had large reserves of fertile land and oil producing regions and so on. And he intended to sweep away the people who were there in the way we had in, with most Native Americans. He famously said once that the Volga, a, ri- a river in the middle of Russia, that the Volga will be our Mississippi. So this was his monument. Now, first, he wanted a realm that had no Jews, and then he wanted the realm to be in a place that there were a lot of Jews. Between 1939 and 1941, he acquired this realm. And in that period of time, there was a transition between the stated objective of sending the Jews somewhere else they they found it around with schemes uh, at one point to even send the Jews to the island of Madagascar off the east coast of Africa and they realized over time that they simply couldn't do that they didn't defeat the british so british ships and british planes were in the way of that kind of transfer and they realized also that by the 1941 that they had the capacity To kill the Jews who were in this area that they wanted to be their living space. They had the capacity because under cover of war, they could shoot a lot of them down just as they moved into Russia in 1941, 42. But they also had the capacity because since 1940, they had been using a form of poison gas, in this case, carbon monoxide, to kill people with mental and physical handicaps in German sanatoria and hospitals. They were doing this in order to clear out hospital beds for people wounded in the war. They regarded these people as useless eaters who would consume German resources but not contribute to the war effort. So they'd already killed about 75,000 of those people by the spring of 1941. And they realized this was a method to kill not the Jews in their path as they advanced into Eastern Europe, but all the Jews who were already under their control in Poland and Germany itself and other occupied countries. So this is the way it develops. It develops out of an ideological contradiction and then a recognition that they could do what they saw as the logical consequence of that contradiction.
1: Peter, why was the Nazi murder policy so... Remarkably successful. Many people, to this day, will make the argument that the Allied powers should have, and indeed could have, done more to stop the progression of the Holocaust. But you disagree.
2: Well, we could have done more, certainly before World War II began. We certainly could have admitted more refugees to the United States. Uh, We had a very strict limitation on the number of people who could come into the U.S. every year. It was capped at 150,000. That 150,000 was subdivided, uh, so each nation had a quota. That quota was based on the percentage of the American population that traced its ancestry to a country in 1890. This meant that the Germans had uh, an unusually large figure. They had about uh, almost 27,000. When you add in Austria, it was over 27,000. Uh, but it was still a very limited number of people. There were 310,000 German Jews on waiting lists to get into the United States in 1939. That if we had if we had admitted them all at the rate of 27,000 a year, it would have taken something like 20 years to, to let them all in. Um, so we could have done more. We did not. We did not want to relax the entrance quotas in the nineteen thirties, largely because of a sense that these people would come and compete with Americans for jobs, and the depression was still going on, um, but also because there was a good deal of anti-Semitic feeling in the United States, and there and there was a general revulsion against European issues, and so a desire which we refer to as isolationism, a desire not to get involved in the quarrels of European ethnic groups and so forth. After the war began, it was much harder for us to interfere in the process. The first reason is because most of the killing occurred in what I refer to as the northeast quadrant of the European continent. In fact, most of it occurred in Poland, Lithuania, and the occupied Soviet Union, including today's Ukraine. All of those those areas were out of reach of allied aircraft or artillery or armies right up until nineteen forty four by that time the of the six places that were set up as death camps to to kill Jews, only two were still in operation. The other thing to remember is this all occurred really really fast. Um, there were six million total victims of the holocaust. Uh, A quarter of them, one and a half million people, died in only 14 weeks in the middle of 1942. Half of them died in a period of only 11 months between the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 41 and the um, German surrender at Stalingrad in um, February of 1943. Three quarters of them were dead by the time the Germans surrendered at Stalingrad. In other words, most of the Holocaust occurred while Germany was winning the war. And that explains the ability of the Germans, for instance, to assemble trains to deport people. Because after 1943, after the surrender at Stalingrad, they had increasing trouble doing that because the war effort had turned against them. They needed all the rolling stock that they could assemble to fight uh and it be- and the deportation trains became much fewer and then finally it was not um it was a, it's a terrible thing to say but it was not terribly hard for the germans to do this they could mow large numbers of people down with machine guns in the east they could round up whole villages of people and, and dispose of them in short order at Yar in um September of 1942, they killed 36,000 people over 48 hours. Um, That was not hard to do. And the death camps were um, remarkably easy to put up. They were cheap. There was no particular budget devoted to these. Most of the camps were scavenged out of material that the Germans could assemble from the immediate area. We tend to misunderstand even the gassing centers because all we really have pictures of um, is Auschwitz. And Auschwitz-Birkenau, there were mostly brick buildings, some some, uh, wooden prefab barracks, the gas chambers after 1943 were brick buildings. We have pictures of them. We don't have pictures of the gas chambers at Treblinka, which killed almost as many people. Um, those things out there in the East, Treblinka, Zobibor, belzec they were put up overnight. They were torn down overnight. They were, were not elaborate facilities. Um, They didn't cost the Germans very much money, and it was easy, and and they required very small garrisons. Um, Treblinka, I think, had the largest German garrison of the death camps uh, other than Auschwitz-Birkenau, and that was only 30 Germans at at the peak. The rest of the guards were... uh, Auxiliaries recruited from Soviet prisoner of war camps, they were told, you know, we won't starve you to death, we'll give you a uniform if you help us with this operation, and many of these people came from Lithuania and Ukraine where anti-Semitism was endemic, and they were perfectly willing to survive by uh, persecuting Jews. And so they became the real foot soldiers of these death camps. So all in all, it was a very difficult process for the Allies to interfere with.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals, slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Peter, that's so interesting because you talk quite a bit about this common misperception that the Holocaust diverted resources from the German war effort. I've certainly heard that uh, idea discussed in the past. Where does that come from and why does it continue to be so pervasive
2: I think it comes from our sense that things in history must somehow be commensurable or in proportion to each other. If you're going to kill 6 million people, it must have involved a lot of other human beings doing it, a lot of resources to do it and so forth. And so we assume, and then we think, the Germans are fighting a war. They're and a war when they're on the defensive after, after February 1943. So every allocation of anything to something other than the war is a diversion. But both of these expectations just aren't true. Um, it's, it, one of the hardest things to grasp about the Holocaust is that the murder of the Jews was ideologically central to Nazism. It was indispensable to Nazism because Nazism believed it could not succeed without eliminating Jews as conspirators and saboteurs. But it was practically peripheral because the resources required to kill the Jews were so, many, so much fewer than we would expect. Consider the trains. Altogether, to deport something like 3 million people, to the death camps, that required roughly, so far as we can figure out, roughly 2,000 trains loaded with a locomotive and the the carrying cars and so forth. That sounds like a lot, until you realize that every day in 1942, there were 25,000 to 30,000 trains rolling on the German railroad system. 2000 over 3 years 25 to 30,000 every day. And then you consider that the Nazis that these trains had no priority from the German point of view. These were just trains loaded with people who were doomed to die. So they didn't have to run on time and they didn't. They had no priority on the railroads. They were frequently shunted aside to allow for military traffic to pass. They also didn't need to have very good equipment, because if you're going to transport a German division to the front, you need to have special cars for artillery, you need to have special cars for tanks, you need to have cars that at least have heat and water so the troops will arrive at the front fit and so forth. For a load of Jews being shipped from outside of Paris to Auschwitz, you didn't even need to have regular railroad cars. Many of them had been decommissioned before the war. They were pressed back into service because they were not useful for anything else, but they were fine for transporting people who were doomed to die. So all of these, what what happened is we just assumed that to kill six million people, you must allocate large resources to it. It must have been complicated. And these assumptions aren't true, but it requires very detailed research to figure that out. Somebody has to count how many trains went on a given day across Europe toward these death camps. Turns out, even in 1942, when the trains were running most frequently, there were only about five of them operating in all of Europe per day. That's a tiny fraction of the traffic. And as I said before, the garrisons at these places were very small, so there's not a real diversion from the German war effort. Uh, And and that's that's the, the sad truth of what it was. The Germans did this almost with their little fingers.
1: Peter, in the second half of your book, one of the myths that you address is this idea that if the Jews would have resisted more forcefully then perhaps the death toll of the Holocaust would have been reduced considerably. So many people will make the argument, well, how could the Jewish people of Europe just allow themselves to be slaughtered en masse? How do you respond to that question?
2: Well the first thing is I would like I remind people that the Jewish community of Europe was not a unified thing. It was internally divided in a host of ways. Uh, it was divided between not only people who were Orthodox Jews or highly traditional or Hasids, it was also, um, and, and people who were almost secular um, or who, what we today in America call Reform Jews, who were called in Europe, Neolog Jews. Uh, there were, So there were all these internal divisions about ritual. There were also divisions about politics. Um Nowadays, Zionism is a popular position among Jewish communities. Before World War II, it was not and therefore there were there were divisions between Zionists and non-Zionists, people who thought the future of the Jewish people was in the countries where they lived, or those who believed the future was in a new state to be created in, in what was then called Palestine. There were political differences. There were people who were very conservative. There were people who were very leftist. So all of the, and in many of these divisions were mirrored by difference. They had their own schools, they had their own orphanages, they had their own hospitals, and so forth. Now, when the German assault began, which in many cases means when the Germans conquered the countries in which these peoples were, they were faced with two very difficult questions. The first was, what what will they do to us? What will they do with us? And in 1939, and when the Germans come into Poland, the Nazi regime does not itself entirely know what they're going to do. So this is a hard question to answer. And then the second is, Even if you can figure out what the Nazis are going to do with us, what's the most effective response? And here, you're not only going to get differences of strategy, you're going to get differences of the attitudes of people. If you are the father of a three-year-old child, the idea of taking up arms against the Germans might not be as attractive as it would be if you were 25 years old, young, not yet married, and so forth. If you had elderly parents the idea of going out to the forest and joining the resistance might not be as attractive as it would be if you were, again, that young guy who was fancy free. And so the personal situation of people makes their willingness to resist as opposed to appease or try to find some middle way or try just to survive and wait it out and see if the, if the Nazis are defeated before catastrophe hits us. The, those All of those differences are characteristic of these communities. And so it was very, very hard to organize resistance. And then you have one other thing, which I noticed in a number of the testimonies of people who left those testimonies in diaries at the time and so forth. And that is there's a human resistance to accepting hopelessness. There's a human resistance to believing that they are going to wipe us out root and branch. And so people kept trying to figure out ways of of, of avoiding that conclusion. Um, We have stories of uh, people learning in Polish villages that villages 20 miles down the road had been liquidated. And as as this word spreads within these villages, people find all kinds of reasons to say, that's not going to happen to us. It happened to them for some reason that people make up, but it won't happen to us. And this this also has a corrosive effect. So you first have to realize what the Jews are up against and who the Jews were in these various places. And then you've got to remember that resistance didn't always work. Um, in fact, in the most extraordinary example of it, which is the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1943... It was a catastrophe. The, of the 55,000 Jews left in the, in the ghetto when the, the Germans uh, try to wipe it out and who fight back, almost all of those people die. Um, so even resistance did, did not necessarily ultimately do anything other than a kind of moral victory.
1: Peter, you talk about the various factors that impacted. Jewish survival during the Holocaust, and you say that the political and personal calculations of collaborationist regimes played a decisive role in this respect. Can you talk about that a bit?
2: Yes. The largest Jewish communities to survive the Holocaust are in um, two places. One is Romania, and the other is France. Now, both of those countries were... Romania openly allied to the Nazi regime in 1940, and Romania participated in the killing of Jews across the border into um, what is today Moldova and southwestern Ukraine, areas that as a price or as a reward for the alliance with Nazi Germany, the Germans turned over to Romania. In those areas, the Germans killed large numbers of Jews. I'm sorry, the Romanians killed large numbers of Jews in 1941 and into 1942. In, In France, the Vichy regime that was set up after the French surrender which was not openly allied with the Nazis, but was collaborationist. That, that Vichy regime began permitting, the deep, it began using its own police to round up Jews, mostly foreign Jews who were refugees in France, and deliver them to the Germans, whereupon they were deported from France to death at, mostly at Auschwitz. There too, most of the victims die in 1942. At the end of 1942, both of these governments changed their mind. In fact, the Romanians had not only done the killing, they had promised the Nazi regime that in 1943 they would begin delivering their, the Jews of Romania proper, their own Jews, to the Nazi regime. Vichy had never gone that far, but, had, but the Germans at various times thought that they had persuaded the Vichy government to turn over even French Jews to it. And, in the, and at the end of 1942, beginning of 1943, both of these regimes changed their minds. Both of them decide that they're no longer going to cooperate with the Nazi killing machinery. And that is why 75% of the Jews of France survived the war. And 80% of the Jews of old Romania, the country proper, not the occupied areas, 80% of those people survived the war, whereas 80% of the Jews in the areas that Romania had marched into were killed. So it was the political calculations of certain governments that did the best at saving Jews, Because they concluded with the reversal of the German army outside of Stalingrad and then its surrender in Stalingrad, that the Germans are likely to lose the war. And if that happens, they're going to have a lot of explaining to do. So in order to reduce how much explaining they would have to do, they suddenly began to protect their Jews. In areas where the local governments were no longer very powerful, because usually these were areas where uh, the Nazis intended to annex those territories after the war. This, is, this would be the Netherlands on the one hand and Lithuania and Latvia on the other, where there were collaborationist governments. Uh, in those places, those regimes did not put up a fight, did not exert any effort to defend the uh, the Jews that the Nazis wanted to take, and most of them were deported. So that's what I meant by saying it was the political calculations of Authorities in these occupied or allied nations that ultimately proved the most successful in saving Jewish lives.
1: Peter, as you know, many people are under this impression that most of the primary perpetrators of the Holocaust escaped punishment after the war. And you take great pains to explain why that's not the case. You really make a point to uh, drive this home. Why does that misconception continue to persist?
2: Well, it's partly definitional. Uh, That is to say, when we talk about perpetrators of the Holocaust, this is a fairly large population. Um, If you think of perpetrators as including, let's say, German businessmen that employed um, concentration camp inmates as slave laborers, there were a lot of those. Uh, If you include every guard at a concentration camp or at a death camp, there were a lot of those. If you include um, even the civilians who enforced discriminatory practices in Germany, like the bank tellers who made sure that the Jewish assets that were concentrated in their bank accounts, but only given out at a small rate every month, if you include those people as perpetrators, it's really large. I think when most people now talk about people getting away with it, they're talking about those categories of people. Um, they, they Then they also think of the sensational cases, Mengele, uh, the experimental doctor at Auschwitz who perpetrated vicious um, so-called medical tests on twins and and various other children, um, Mengele got away to South America and survived. And of course, we everybody knows the story of Adolf Eichmann, who got away to South America but didn't survive, was caught, ultimately. Um, so there's a tendency to think of these big sensational cases. There were also some marvelous movies in in the 1960s, The Odessa File and, and several others, and The Boys from Brazil, that spread the notion of... Um, former Nazis having hidden out in South American jungles or or various places. And so it's kind of lodged in the public memory. But if we look at the major perpetrators, the people who were the heads of shooting units in the East, the commandants of concentration camps, the 15 men who sat around the table at the Banzai conference and worked out the administration of the details of the final solution – Almost all of those people were either dead by 1945, because they had in some way or another been killed supporting the Nazi regime, or were subsequently punished. The minute you move down the hierarchy from the very top, the head of the camps, the head of the shooting units, to let's say the third level of you know, the lieutenant colonels and the colonels and so forth, or the com- c- commanders of subunits and so forth, then the record gets worse, but at the top, the record is pretty good. And I would argue that it was very good if you consider how little we knew about the details in the 1940s. You know, Adolf Eichmann's name doesn't even come up until relatively late in the Nuremberg trials in 1946. And then there's difficulty figuring out exactly where who he was in the hierarchy. Um, and we utterly ignored a man named Hans Höfler, who was the Eichmann of occupied Poland, who probably was responsible for the trains that deported twice as many people as the trains that Eichmann was responsible for. And Höfler got caught finally in 1961, and he hanged himself in a jail in Salzburg in Austria in 1962, right after Eichmann had been executed. Um, But we we almost don't, we, we still don't really, many people don't appreciate how important he was to the process. So it's a complicated story. It has to do with some famous people getting away, with a lot of cogs in the the system going unpunished. But we should not neglect the fact that the chief perpetrators were on the whole captured and punished.
1: Peter, late in your book, you address Holocaust deniers. And it's always fascinating to me to consider the prevalence of that view In our world today, uh, you cite the British historian David Irving, probably the most famous Holocaust denier. The late British writer Christopher Hitchens once said that he learned more from David Irving about the Holocaust than almost any contemporary historian, which I found to be an interesting comment. Should we be concerned, Peter, in the contemporary world, about the prevalence of Holocaust deniers?
2: Yes, we should because Holocaust denial is a form of anti-Semitism and we should be concerned about anti-Semitism. The recurrence, the recrudescence of it in the last few years has been truly shocking. It's already begun to kill people in the United States. The Tree of Life Synagogue, the synagogue out in California, machete attack outside of New York. Um, So this is a lurking monster in our society. Um, As I said right at the beginning, it's built into Western culture. it, It is ineradicable because it has such a long tradition behind it. And there are always going to be some people who resurrect it for whatever psychological or personal resentments they have and bring it back out in the open. And so if denial is a form of that, we have to fight it. And and the whole issue of denial, though, is one of those cases where, you know, you don't know whether to laugh or to cry because um, it's laughable. The Holocaust is, on the one hand, one of the most thoroughly documented events in human history. We have everything. We have even a... We have a... In the National Archives, we have a record that is... it's a recording of a speech that Heinrich Himmler made to SS officers in the town of Posen in um, October of 1943, where he basically says to him, all of you know what it's like to walk through fields of blood. And you know what this is like, and we are doing this for the future of our nation. We know that this is the only way to win the war and so on and so forth. And it is marvelous that you have been able to be, in effect, he says, it's marvelous you've been able to be butchers, but you have still remained decent people. Now, this is is a chilling thing. It's right there. You can hear the man's voice. And this is clearly what would amount today to a confession of what had happened. And yet people bend over backwards to serve the argument of denial by saying, oh, that's a forgery. This is the kind of argument that you get from deniers about every form of evidence. We have manifests that list people by name on deportation trains going to Auschwitz. We have telegrams that Hans Höfler, a man I mentioned before, sent back to headquarters in Berlin in January 1943, itemizing how many people they had killed at each of the death camps during 1942 it comes to almost 1.3 million people at that point gassed every one of the camps is indicated with an initial and a number so We've got all kinds of documentation. We have Hitler's speech to the Reichstag, January 30th, 1939, saying if war breaks out in Europe again, it will not be the end of the German people. It will, be the, it will mean the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. So on the one hand, it's laughable because the evidence is super abundant. But it's also a reason to cry because no matter what you say, no matter how much evidence you show these people try desperately to falsify it, and they do it because they have to believe, they have set up a, a view in their own minds, that the Jews are guilty, the Jews are the bad people, the Jews are exaggerating all of this in order to get more aid or support for Israel, for instance. And there's there's almost nothing you can do in the face of that kind of irrationality. It's a, it's a circular argument, it's a self-fulfilling argument, argument, and it's impenetrable from outside. Um, it's rather like arguing with an old Bolshevik. Uh, you know, they're gonna, Everything's going to come back to class war. And in the case of deniers, everything's going to come back to Jewish conspiracy.
1: Peter, as we wrap up our conversation today, let's address the final question that you take on in your book, which is, what lessons should we draw from the Holocaust. You discuss the potential for renewed outbreaks of anti-Semitism against Jews in particular, and I just want to read uh, a paragraph on page 336 at the end of your book. You say, quote, anti-Semitism is not necessarily always dangerous. It made Hitler possible, but it did not make him succeed. An irony of the history of anti-Semitism is that this ideology called Jews parasites and has always been a parasitic issue. To succeed, it has needed a host that it can exploit, a pervasive sense of crisis and victimization that allegedly justifies lashing out and reprisal." Can you elaborate on that for us, Peter?
2: Well, I'm not sure I can elaborate on what I said, uh, but I certainly can elaborate on its implications because... um, I think a little further in that last chapter, I I sort of end on a kind of optimistic note about anti-Semitism, where I say, you know, we can contain it, we can push it back. And in this country, I felt at the time that I wrote that, which was early 2016, that we'd done a pretty good job and that, uh, therefore, it was not a danger in America, it was a anti-Semitism is a danger in the wider world, and particularly in certain parts of the world where Jews are demonized. But obviously, I was a little too um, <clears throat> and there was there were some rose-colored glasses there because we have had incidents in this country that have been truly shocking. Charlottesville was one. Uh, The deaths that have occurred are another. The leaflets that have appeared in American suburbs around Atlanta, around Chicago, I think most recently in Florida, which have spread conspiratorial notions about Jews. Um, So all of this shows that um, anti-Semitism is alive and well, and it has to be fought. Uh, And that means people have to stand up for, uh, for human equality Stand up for the right of people to be different from each other, and if there's a fundamental lesson from this whole thing, it is <clears throat> and particularly from the the rise of Hitler and from what he did, the fundamental lesson is you should never let anyone acquire political power who openly preaches hate toward a particular group um, there are because the hatred is the source. Um, or the hatred reinforces the sense of victimization. The argument always goes, we're acting in self-defense. They did it to us first. They are bad. And therefore, we are entitled to do anything to them that we want in self-defense. This is always the, the form of the argument. And the, the, the people at the end of that, the people being accused, may vary over time. Uh, In this country, we've had waves of this. We had anti-Catholic feeling in the 1840s and 50s. We had um, the exclusion of the Chinese in the 1880s. We had the immigration laws of the 1920s, which were explicitly designed to keep out Italians, Slavs, Jews from Eastern Europe, and so forth. Always a sense that these people can't be assimilated. They're not like us. And nowadays, it is applied to Muslims. And to people from Latin America. Uh, we should always, always refute these kinds of arguments. Um, and so that's that's what I think the, the bottom line here is uh, the lesson, the the words with which I end the book are the German proverb wert den Anfängen, beware the beginnings. And authoritarian movements begin with this kind of drawing a circle that excludes a certain group of people, saying they're not like us, they can never be like us, they're inferior, and therefore we are entitled to proceed against them. And that we should always, always fight back on.
1: Peter, I I would be remiss if I don't mention a thought that you cite quite often in your book And that is that anti-Semitism rises and falls in conjunction with the stock market. And I found that to be very intriguing. Uh, You think of the depression and uh, economic crises in Germany that helped spur the rise of Hitler and that undermined the sense of Jewish and non-Jewish solidarity in Germany. Uh, Is that human nature, that idea of anti-Semitism? rising and falling as the stock market goes
2: yeah i mean the the, the phrase is in inverse relationship to the stock market that is when the market goes down anti-semitism goes up and vice versa Uh, and i think it is partly human nature because human beings seem to prefer personalizing and simple explanations Uh, if you're if you're buffeted by all kinds of bad things happening it's easier to believe that somebody's doing it to you uh, and that that's the cause it's you know who qui bono is the Latin phrase who benefits it's sort of like follow the money if you want to know who who's behind something look who is benefiting from it but that's that's a fallacy that's a logical fallacy correlation is not cause uh, correlation is just simultaneity so you have to look more deeply into things but That's hard for people to do because people are busy and they're raising families and they're thinking about lots of different subjects at the same time. Um, And it's hard also to be level-headed and cool when things are going badly for you. So that makes for, I wouldn't say a, a human nature, but maybe a human propensity to adopt explanations like this. And, you know, we're seeing it a little bit in America now because we're still living with the after effects of the financial meltdown in 2009, 8 and 9. And we're seeing that some people are doing particularly well out of that, particularly who people who are in finance or who are, in general, people who are well educated. And some people are not doing well, like blue collar workers and people in rural areas and so on. And so the tendency is to look for simple explanations um, and to adopt simple-minded political movements as a vehicle for that.
1: We've been discussing the book of Peter Hayes, Why? Explaining the Holocaust, published in 2017. Peter is a Holocaust historian from Northwestern University. It's been such a delight, Peter. Thanks so much for doing this.
2: Glad to do it, Joe. Thank you.